Hi, this is Edward Liu, author of The More We Become. I am so excited to start this weekly podcast to discuss the insights from my book and beyond. My goal overall is for you to get two things. One, that you have unlimited potential and resources that you can pull from that can take your life to the next level. Second, by gaining insights from listening to this podcast, you will not only be able to elevate yourself, but it will increase your ability to positively impact others. Together, I hope we can make our world a better place. As I said in the preface of my book, the greatest authentic prestige, honor, and privilege we can bestow upon ourselves is to develop and use our ability to elevate those around us. It says that we have become a person whose life is worth living because we matter to others and they matter to us. I look forward to sharing my insights and hearing from you. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the More We Become Insights podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm especially honored to have our guest uh, today, Hetel Jani. And she, if you have a copy of my book, she wrote, you know, one of the, you know, testimonials uh, to my book. So I'm really grateful for, to have Hetel. Now, this is a very important topic. What I, this is going to be a series of uh, podcast conversations. And it's uh, really on the last chapter. The last chapter is about how can we conceive wealth in a different manner. But more importantly, it's really at the gist of why I wrote uh, the, the More We Become. Um, you know, the idea of more we become is that, you know, the more successful we are, the happier we are, the more clarity we have, the more it increases our ability to give others. So sort of this is like a culmination of season one of um, the More We Become Insights podcast. Uh, so uh, one of uh, my uh, favorite motivational speakers, uh, Tony Robbins, he talks about six human needs. The six human needs are the need for uh, certainty, the need for variety, the need for significance, the need for love and connection, the need for growth, and the need for contribution. And so this idea of giving actuality meets all six needs, right? And at a deeper level. So I want you guys to walk away with like why I pursue this idea of trying to uplift others. And uh, Hethel's going to be a perfect example of like how to go about that. And like, like we want to pick her brains in terms of, you know, why, you know, she, she's doing what she's doing. Um, just, so just a little bit about Hetel um, before, you know, uh, Hetel introduces herself. Uh, I met Hetel through a friend of mine and, uh, and I really believed in her vision. At the time it was called Speak Mentorship. It's now called Speak Higher. And uh, I was just like very enamored with the idea of, uh, of her vision of what she want, wanted to do for newly arrived immigrant um, at the time was female students. Um, so uh, I'm actually part of the advisory board and I actually helped Hetel to find a couple of schools. So I'm really, really uh, excited to bring you Hetel. It's, uh, she, won, she, also won, uh, she also won the award for L'Oreal Paris uh, Women Empower Empowering Women. It was, and it was presented the award by Dame uh, Helen Mirren. Um, so uh, really, really her, in, her work has, is out there now. Um, and it's doing great things. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to, to Hetel Jani and uh, the, uh, the founder of uh, Speak Hire. All right. Hi, Hetel. Hi, Ed. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate um, inviting me onto this podcast. Yeah, thank you. So uh, tell us a little about yourself and a little bit about your background and how you arrived at the vision of creating Speak Hire. Um, you know, at the time it was called Speak Mentorship, but now it's called Speak Hire. 
But so tell us a little bit about how you arrived at, you know, doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, so, um, well, I'm a born and raised New Yorker, uh, but I am a daughter of immigrants as well. Uh, and I'm proudly from, proudly from Queens. Uh, so all of that has um, had such a, played such a central role to what I do now. Because uh, if you know anything about Queens, it's a very diverse borough. And when I grew up in New York City and Queens, it was also very diverse. So all those experiences allowed me to explore my own culture. And I felt very, um, you know, I felt um, like a lot of different cultures made up who I am because I was from Queens. And as I got older, I went to school in Manhattan. I went to high school in Manhattan. And I still felt seen, um, but I, I, my worldview was definitely expanded because there were, um, more cultures, I guess, that I was exposed to in Manhattan. But it was when I finally went to undergrad and it was undergrad in uh, Pennsylvania where I, I started seeing myself as um, maybe different than how other people might define American. And that was uh, something that I wasn't really attuned to yet, but I started feeling it. And um, I just noticed that I was, well, I wasn't actually noticing, I was just acting on these, um, these reflections of wanting to tap into my culture a little bit more uh, at my undergrad. So I started a South Asian dance troupe. I took a like anything that they could offer in terms of South Asian studies. And I had never needed to do that before in my upbringing in New York City. So I just, but, but I wasn't at the time really reflecting on why I was doing that. It wasn't until I got into education after I started a, um, I started going into working with young people. And it was there that I started noticing how culture really plays a role in how we perceive ourselves and how we portray ourselves, how others perceive us. And um, I you know, ended up going into uh, education and I absolutely loved it and thought that academics and supporting young people through their academics was what was needed until I came across one young woman who I was working with uh, for four years and she was academically stellar. But it was this one moment where after four years of just performing um, at the top of her class, she got an 80 on a long essay assignment. And that was the first time I also met her father. And her father comes from a country where young women are not necessarily pursuing careers. And so he believed that his daughter at the age of 12, uh, getting an 80 meant that she had no future uh, pursuing a career. And so in front of me, in front of her, he threatened her with marriage. And that was the moment where I just, you know, it was as if my whole life had flashed in front of me and I realized how culture had deeply impacted my own pathway. So for her uh, and for her mother who came the next day, her mother was the one that said, Hethel, uh, you had already been serving as a role model for my daughter because they're West Indian and I'm East Indian. And so she said, you know, just being the role model and being you for the past four years has enabled her to have a voice much more than I could have ever provided her because of the culture that we come from. And that was the uh, inception of uh, then the Speak was the original name. That's why it's called Speak because her mother has had been the one that said, you allowed my daughter to speak up for herself. And so that's why Speak was always in the name. And then we um, became Speak Mentorship and now we're Speak Higher. But really the goal was um, for all, you know, initially all young women, but now all young people who, for whom culture is not so clearly understood and we straddle multiple cultures and uh, we live here in America and we are as American as anyone else but our cultures are not really represented um, so that we can feel completely full and realize our full potentials and um, using those stories and using my own stories and using the stories of many people who I know my friends my networks uh, I developed Speak Higher. 
Wow, that that's amazing. I mean, right there is uh, like I, I see two major uh, like purposes right there. Right, one being that you want to empower uh, you know young women and now young men because Speak Hard is now also you know uh, serving you know the the male students, but you wanted to give them a voice uh, so that they have a future and to uh, create a situation where hey. We're, you know, students of color have a lot to give, you know, to America. America is so more expansive and great because of our diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's, that, that's two amazing uh, whys. Like I always say, like, like what's, what drives us, we have to have a strong enough why. And that, that's uh, incredibly uh, powerful. Now, um, when you started, I'm sure there were obstacles along the way and frustrations. Uh, talk a little, a little bit about that and just like, like what made you continue despite like some of the obstacles and frustrations? Yeah, I mean, being a social entrepreneur, especially a female founder of color is extremely challenging. And I wasn't already in the nonprofit space. I uh, had no idea what it meant to be in the nonprofit space. So I initially started and, uh, you know, I joined a couple of nonprofit meetups uh, thinking that this was, you know, this is where I just, I just need to find information of what it meant to found a nonprofit, and whatever networking events I could find that focused on what it meant to launch a nonprofit, um, what, um, you know, why, really trying to understand why a nonprofit board even comes together, which is so very different from a for-profit board. What makes or compels people to come together on a nonprofit board? Um, what are the key ingredients, but also the, again, the, the new bottom line of a nonprofit that I had to, you know, I was working more, I was working in the for-profit industry. So I had to really understand um, what it meant. And that's, I mean, this space was just really uh, comfortable for me because my bottom line always was the well-being of a young person. And so once I understood that the nonprofit world also had that or shared that bottom line or seeks to share that bottom line, that's when I knew that Speak had to be Speak Higher had to be um, formed as a nonprofit. That's why I chose it as a nonprofit rather than um, any other uh, sort of entity. But it was really challenging. I also moved to China at the same time. So I thought this was going to be a passion project that um, I would just start for some of the young women who I already spoke about and knew existed in my media community. And I um, had some familiarity with them where I could move to China and still keep a relationship going and support them through whatever programming we were thinking of at the time and and they would be uh, helping us in the pilots of those programs. So um, while I was in China, I would work on this before I I went to China for work. So I would work on um, my organization speak higher before and after work hours, because again, it's a 12 to 13 hour difference. And um, I would work on it before and then I would come right home and I would work on it after. And I didn't really understand what I was working on. All I knew was what I was, who I was working for. And that was the most important thing. It was these young women who we'd already had, um, again, agreed, they had agreed to work in our, on our um, pilot programs, which we were still developing uh, in support and in collaboration with them. And so I knew that their feedback was really important for me. And in order for me to communicate with them, I had to do that when they were awake, which was again, before my working hours in China um, and after my working hours in China. And so, with them, I was able to create the initial programming. And that was when I learned uh, still, you know, I mean, it's always through the young people that you're helping or the people that you're helping through a nonprofit or a social venture that you learn what you're, you still need to learn. 
And uh, one of the young people, we initially were going to be a more traditional mentorship program, thinking, you know, for me, the pivotal moments that I've had in my career have, like, I can very well pinpoint them to a couple of mentors that I've had, a couple of coaches, um, you know, well-wishers, people who guide me in and motivate me in that moment and encourage me in that moment. And so we thought the same model needed to apply because the way that I had found those people were through in-person uh, interactions. And uh, one young woman who we had in, in the initial pilot, she uh, wasn't able to meet with her coach uh, on a weekly basis. Nobody was able to um, take her to those meetings. And even though she was, uh, I guess, you know, for some people, she, she might be considered old enough to be able to commute herself, she had a lot of responsibilities. And again, it was a culture that I wanted to tackle, but I still wasn't tackling um, because her culture was limiting her. She lives in a multi-generational, uh, multi-unit home in the sense that there's more than one family unit living in that home. And she's responsible for a number of people, including a lot of younger cousins. And uh, this mindset that they hold in this house household always made it so that her chores took more of a precedence than her own self-development. And no matter how much she tried to find her voice, it was stifled and stunted in that home environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was the one that at the first time when she was supposed to have a session, right, I believe it was an hour before, if I remember correctly now, asked me, can we please just do this through Skype? And she connected from a closet mm -hmm. to her coach at the time, her, uh, the person who we'd connected her with, she wanted to work um, at the time, she was only uh, 16 or 15 when we met her, I believe, mm -hmm. and wanted to, had this vision of wanting to work for the UN someday and uh, wanted to be a lawyer to get there. So we matched her with a lawyer and um, she connected with this person in a closet. And it was startling and beautiful at the same time because what she was willing to do for her own self-development at the age of 15, 16 years old is is how much potential these young people show and we're not recognizing. And so when I understood that, I knew immediately we needed to shift because we are not accessing the full potential of even our networks if we're not really bringing um, the world's population to the hands of these young people when they're really seeking it. So when I uh, you know, saw this story, when I saw this moment, and we asked another young woman who was in our program at the time why she was able to do it, why she was successful. And she said it was because uh, it's a difference of the family home environment and um, what that could look like, you know, where education of whether it be a young person or whether, you know, go even a little bit more or deeper and say whether it's the education of a young woman and how that plays into the development uh, of, of children and their upbringing, like what that, um, where that place, where, that, where that's placed, I guess, in the priority level is really what's most, um, what's most impacting young people and how they grow up. And it's not to say that this is, these are not caring family members. Mm. It's not to say that these people don't want their children to succeed. It's just a mindset that uh, they hold and they're not aware of something different. Mm. And so if we can allow the young people to flourish and perhaps ch start changing that dinner table conversation to show them what's possible, then, uh, you know, then I feel like I've done something right. Absolutely. So yeah, it, it's an interesting thing. I was talking to a, a student at some point about, um, you know, the frog, right, lives in the well. He, the frog thinks he or she is, that's the world. The frog doesn't realize that there's a whole different world out there and somebody needed to sort of show them the way and, the, and then eventually the frog jumps high enough, he or she will see 
right? There's an entire world. And so what you're doing is you're shedding light and you are taking that student by the hand and, you know, basically allowing that student to jump into a new paradigm, right? And with new resources and new possibilities. So that's really, so it's really amazing. Now, I, having worked with you, I know that we talked about some frustrations trying to um, get schools to, you know, buy into Speak Higher. And uh, we, you've gone through a, a number of uh, rejections or frustrations. And so I'm wondering, the, maybe that story is what keeps you like, uh, you know, driven or are there others, like, what do you think about when you, when you face those obstacles? Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it is, um, I mean, it's that story that's so central that um, I, I also had not known. Uh, you know, when I went, when I first entered education thinking that academics was it, like I just need to focus on the grades and making sure that students understood the content and everything would be okay. And when I learned that, you know, you could have a, a student who's for four years performing at the top of her class, something else can be the barrier all of a sudden without even realizing it. And then thinking, okay, now we need to um, focus on culture, but then realizing, you know, how are we really focusing on culture? The initial intent was, let me just pair this young woman with a lawyer who's also South Asian. This young woman identified as South Asian. So let me pair her with a South Asian lawyer. And that would, that conversation is sufficient. And little did I realize that no, you know, I mean, um, it's more than just matching her. It's the accessibility of matching her to somebody and uh, her being able to make those sessions, her being able to really, um, you know, show up completely, fully ready to have those conversations. So every time I have a new uh, young person and I realize what more we could address, that's what keeps me going. Because I know that the schools are doing their best jobs with the resources that they have. And if I am set to achieve this mission, but I'm still learning in the process, then how can I accept a school's, you know, let's say a rejection or just a delay of implementing our programs as the end all be all. Like it's on us to show them just as the young people are showing me what more I need to do or how I need to shift in order to really help them. Then it's also on us as educators, as people who are social entrepreneurs or people who are just trying to change the world for better, um, for, you know, towards more positive outcomes that if we're really going to do this, we need to keep expanding our mindsets to see what's possible. Mm. And we also have to wait for the moment that people are ready for that. Mm. So if a school says no, it doesn't mean for me, I don't take it as a complete no. I take it as they're just not ready for it because we know that many of the schools that we would hope to serve have limited resources. And I can't imagine what they're already dealing with. I think educators are some, I mean, educators are heroes of our society. So what they're already dealing with. And on top of that, I wanna provide a solution, but um, the solution isn't going to take if someone's not ready for that solution yet. So the school has to be ready for it as well. So what drives me is knowing that what I've learned through each of these young people um, is something that I can also relay over time to our eventual partners and we'll get there. Right. It's almost like if, if you did not continue doing what you're doing, a lot of the, the students would not have that pathway to empowerment and they'll be stuck. They could be working their butts off, but then they're, they're not, you know, getting the opportunities that they could be, you know, if you, if that speak higher wasn't there. And I think the other lesson that that's so, so powerful is that 
yeah, just because somebody says no doesn't mean they're going to say no later. It's just the timing is not um, might not be right. And uh, I mean, uh, we had a lot of interactions where we thought, hey, they said no. And then later on, they said yes. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think that's a valuable le- lesson for anybody that's trying to, you know, to produce success and also try to elevate. Like, keep in mind, like, why you're doing what you're doing and how important it is that, that you don't quit and that you continue and that don't take no as rejection is just uh, another la- another um, ladder that you need to climb in order to for them to, to say yes. So that so that's amazing. Um, so thank, wow, these are I'm, I'm learning so much. Um, let's talk a little bit about the impact of the work, right? You put in all the work, you took no's and you, you turned them into yes. You per- persevere even though uh, things didn't seem to sometimes go, you know one's way when we're trying to like create a not-for-profit or we're starting our own business. Um, what has been like some of the, the impact and the positives by you persevering and not giving up? Yeah, I think, um, I think that's, that's the central, I mean, I remind myself too, why am I here? And I think it's just, I didn't stop. Uh, so by not stopping, we've, we've grown steadily. We've, uh, you know, in our, our, again, first year alone for me to be able to launch an organization and do this from China, um, despite holding a full-time job for the first three years of the organization, um, that, that's the, uh, that alone is impact. So if I had to say, you know, what, how would you equate impact? I think people equate impact differently. And again, depending on the resources that you have, you're going to see that impact differently as well. So for me, I had to define impact as me still being here initially, because as I mentioned, founders, women of color founders, um, especially in nonprofit space, do not get the access to funding that other people do. And so for me to still be here and make impact is impact for me. Mm. Um, and then uh, I moved back in after uh, in 2017 in June to work on this full time because uh, while we were in China, while I was in China, um, that was also uh, the 2016 presidential election. Mm. And again, this was only a passion project. It was a hobby of mine, but uh, that spring or that, that pretty much January and into February, I had just set so, sent some outreach emails, the same outreach emails that I had been sending uh, to schools, but this time it was different, right? So again, this is the moment that I keep talking about, about being ready. Um, so now the schools were ready because of the impact that immigrant youth were now facing, that immigrant families were now facing. So schools were ready for the concept that we were focusing on, which was empowering immigrant youth. And uh, it was still a challenge because we were virtual programming, which was very foreign uh, to a lot of the schools. So we were lucky enough to have uh, three schools, one in Philadelphia, one in Newark, New Jersey, and one in Brooklyn, New York, who were willing to pilot this approach of virtual programming, which again, um, it, it really mattered more that they were ready to support their immigrant youth in that moment, that they were willing to try and pilot this virtual approach that they've never um, piloted before, they never thought about before. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no, for them, there was no efficacy to virtual programming, but the call to action as educators for them to support their immigrant youth made it possible for me to have this partnership. And that was when um, you know, I hadn't actually thought anything different was going to happen. Um, I knew that I needed to push more because of the election, because of the uh, current state of affairs in America. 
And I didn't think that I was going to be moving back to the States, but once uh, it was the Newark uh, school came first. And when they did, it was a large population. They said, you know, we're really heavily immigrant population. We'd love to talk about 50 students. And that's when I knew that I had to move back uh, immediately from China. So I came back in June uh, so that we could launch our programs there in August. And um, people called me crazy and said, why are you doing this in three different states? And I said, well, because the schools are willing to do it and that's it, mm -hmm. right? So I could have tried to focus and harness my energy, which uh, it took a lot of energy to drive to Newark, to drive to Philadelphia, to drive to Brooklyn. And again, I live uh, in, I'm from Queens by Long Island now. So um, it took a lot of energy, but the more important thing was that these schools were ready. And if uh, I just mentioned, you're looking for a moment when people are ready to take your solution, then you do everything to make sure that that solution is in place so you can measure the outcomes. So um, the outcomes that we saw that year, again, were just the fact that we now went into three schools in three states really quickly. And uh, we now had a cohort that went from just a pilot of initially, uh, you know, uh, five or 10 students to now we were impacting over, and then we had an additional school join us in Philadelphia. So now we were impacting over 75 students. So that was, that was impact for me. And how you um, define impact, again, is going to depend on your resources. And so for me, being a one-person organization at the time, one and a half, we, I definitely had support of a program, incredible program administrator um, who was also working full-time. So with those limited resources, she and I were able to grow the organization so quickly, again, just testing what does it mean if we're in three schools. And the fact that we were virtual allowed us to be in three schools in three different states. And at the same time, we um, had this incredible access or this incredible content of um, our speaker series, which was something that we were also testing just to see how powerful it would be to have uh, diverse professionals share their authentic stories for young people. And um, it was so powerful that in that same year, uh, in the fall of 2017, again, because of everything that was going on in the world, I was able to launch uh, our empowerment courses in Ghana, in two cities in Ghana, and in two cities in India. So this was all happening with a one and a half person team because both of us knew that we this needed to happen and that was it. So I think um, now we've reached, uh, now we are in four states and we have incredible partnerships with multiple schools in uh, New York and in uh, Philadelphia is growing, our, our footprint is growing, uh, Texas, our footprint is growing. And we know that our uh, we represent over 54 countries our cohort comes from. Right now, our intern cohort, our youth cohort, and our professionals cohort, um, they actually live around the world. So we not only have growing impact this year, we have over 350 students impacted, uh, again, in multiple states, in multiple cities. But um, how you define impact is also going to be dependent on how your own resources look at the time. So I really encourage people to not stop. Um, redefine what impact looks like based off of your resources. I think sometimes we measure ourselves to people who have incredible amounts of resources and we think we're never gonna make that. But if you redefine your impact based off of the resources that you have, then you'll see that you're making a whole world of impact um, given what you're, what you're working with. Right, and then the thing is your impact is growing, right? It's not a static thing. And so just because let's say you start at one school and you have 10 students, if you're growing, you know, that impact is going to grow given your resources, right? And so to sort of piggy, piggyback off of that uh, question, 
was there like a, a student that stood out that you felt, wow, you know, if it wasn't for Speak Higher, like look, look at where she or he has gone, you know, gone as a result of being with Speak Higher. Uh, is, there, is there a student that comes to mind? Yeah, so I mean, we've, we've impacted now, I would say, and by impact, I mean, you know, there's direct services and then there's our speaker series events and then there's our leadership and empowerment courses. So it's, it's been upward, I mean, it's definitely um, over 1,200 people to 1,400 people, I would say now. Um, and that impact is only going to double, I think, this year. So it's hard to pinpoint just one person because uh, we collect data. I'm really big on data. Um, I think, again, as a social entrepreneur with limited resources, you have to know if you're going on the right track because you only have so many resources to um, work with to begin with. And so for me, it's really critical to measure data and know that I'm doing the right thing. And if we're not necessarily getting the results from the data that we measure frequently, then I pivot. Um, also frequently. So we just uh, finished in one of our programs, we just finished um, what we call an internship round where we match young people to uh, career professionals over, um, over a number of sessions virtually. And we just finished an internship round for um, 120 plus young people. And we're receiving those responses for that internship round right now. And I can say this is not anything that I say Speak Higher has done. This is something they all say that Speak Higher has helped me improve my language uh, incredibly within just nine sessions. Speak Higher has allowed me to go from working at a deli job to my champion finding me a job at my local CVS pharmacy because I'm interested in becoming a pharmacist in the future. Speak Hire has helped me get an internship. Speak Hire has helped me um, really take this information back to my parents about why I can pursue a career in the arts and know that I can be successful working for a company like, for example, Walt Disney in the future, uh, even though my parents might come with the information from their home country that engineering or, or law is um, the way to become successful. So uh, we're seeing these responses constantly and I read every single one if any of our youth are watching. I, I mean, our professionals also respond to those same surveys. And we see the growth in our professionals as well, who many of our professionals identify as female and um, the empowerment that they feel from uh, working with, you know, essentially effectively the younger person, the younger version of themselves. And so it's so empowering to speak to the younger version of yourself and then reflect on that and be able to see how far you've come because that enables you to tap further into your voice and take that back into your organization, your corporation, your workplace and advocate for yourself. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that um, these women are better advocating for the, um, you know, increasing the women of color at their places. So um, they're now realizing like, why aren't we doing more as a company right. to lift up these young people? Why aren't we actually advocating, you know, or what are we doing to really advocate for this talent pipeline? So that in 10 years, this young girl who looks like me or this young man who looks like me can be in the same position or even further than I am right now. So, um, you know, to answer your question, it, one person is hard to pinpoint, um, mm -hmm. but I will say we, we have these, um, just to share one story, I guess, two young brothers from Afghanistan who just came here last year, just recently. And, uh, you know, they, we had to match them with someone who spoke Pashto, their language as their first uh, professional. Mm -hmm. And now we are matching them with somebody who only, you know, pretty much speaks English is, is how we match them. So they definitely credit the conversations that they've had with these professionals 
in how much their English has improved. I think that's just beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So you're not only shifting paradigms, you're opening doors, and you're creating a society where the people who are hiring are recognizing that there's value in diversity. So right there is three, you know, impactful uh, results as, as, you know, for you to continue to uh, expand and grow speak higher. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of needs in the world, right? There's a um, lot of areas where pe we, we need people to think of ways to make the world a better place, right? And I know you read the last chapter. My last chapter in my book is, is about, you know, what can we do to make the world, you know, a better place? Um, I wanted just to hear your thoughts about the last chapter and what do you think are the needs of the world and what can somebody do to make a difference? Yeah, and I thought the last chapter was really powerful because it really tapped into a lot of, um, unfortunately, a lot of what's what needs to happen still, what we remain, what remains to be seen. Um, so we, we do see a lot of people who have acquired a lot of wealth and they are holding on to that wealth mm. rather than distributing that wealth. And it baffles me all the time because again, with limit, limited resources that I have, and I'm not saying that I'm in any way the example for others, but I'm just, um, I'm just one person who with limited resources can make a difference. And I can only imagine what someone who has multiple times the resources that I have can do with their resources. And I thought you beautifully wrote that throughout the last chapter of how, you know, yes, it's important to accumulate our wealth. And there's many ways that we should think about doing that. It's not about not acquiring wealth, but it's about what we do with that wealth that can then multiply the impact uh, and social good for the rest of the world. And I would love to see people reading the chapter and reading the book and making sure that they're taking those steps Right, so you talk about the inspiration circle and how we can really have a community um, centered around uh, positivity and inspiration so people feel constantly encouraged. I think there is a lot of, um, there's a lot going on in the world right now, period, especially with the access to information that we have uh, at our fingertips because of technology that uh, can bring us down, that can make us self-reflect and think that we don't have enough as compared to somebody else. But, um, if we really think about how we can build what we have and tap into what we already have to then uh, multiply that impact, we'll feel even better about ourselves. I feel good about myself every day that again, I see one person whose English is improving, one person who's now able to better support their family because they've shifted again from a job working at a local deli to working at a CBS and they're making higher income. And uh, the understanding that they're on or a better, they're on a more direct trajectory towards uh, longer term success towards their livelihood. And I had an impact in that, whether it's small or large, I had an impact in that. And if I can do that just by spending my time and my resources to get that young person um, settled into their future career, then what can you do with, you know, working with others and collaborating, you know, in communities like Inspiration Circle to, or creating Inspiration Circles to then make sure that the rest of the world is, is better off. And you mentioned it as well, you know, um, thinking about your purchasing power and how that purchasing power really uh, can impact or what that purchasing power, the impact of that purchasing power can be, right? Can it be um, supporting, providing water to those in need in a different country or do you really need to buy that material item? Which 
uh, yes, we all need to also enjoy our own wealth that we create for ourselves, but sometimes how we enjoy it can be redefined is uh, the essence of chapter six. So can we think about wealth differently and material items bring us individual pleasure? So that's also important, but um, the power of giving also brings us pleasure. And that's also important. So we need to rethink how we think about our own purchasing power and what that outcome could look like. Right, right. And then, you know, yeah, that's the that's what I'm hoping that that last chapter and just the book in general, it just shifts the paradigm instead of accumulating all that wealth. And you could get only so much by accumulation, use that to uplift others and you feel, you know, so fulfilled. So the good news is that, you know, when I, when I wrote the book, there was um, about 50 members of or 40 members of the giving club. These are all billionaires. And they pledged to donate half of their uh, fortunes to good causes. And now I just looked it up today. They have 211 members. Right? So it's mm-hmm. grown. So there, so there are people out there. And so I'm hoping that the book and, you know, these conversations, people of, of abundance here, they're like, hey, you know what? I don't need to hold on to all this. I can utilize this. I can still have, maintain my material, enjoy my material possessions. But now I can redirect some of this. And if, if I redirect five to 10% of this for a good cause, uh, you know, it's going to make a huge difference. And I'm going to feel more fulfilled in the way that I'm using my resources. And then there's, there's greater purpose behind accumulating wealth. We can actually elevate, you know, and make the, make our world a better place. And, you know, 211, you know, billionaires have, have, have realized this, right? So, you know, I think there's hope out there. So this has been, uh, uh, I learned so much, you know, uh, working with you, is different than actually hearing your story. It's just so powerful. I have a better sense of why you do what you do. Um, so for our listeners out there, like what would you say, we, we spoke a lot, you, you mentioned a lot of great things. What would, uh, what would be some, a couple of walkaways you want, would want listeners to, to walk away with if they're thinking about what they could do to make a difference in the lives of other people and make our world a better place? Yeah, I mean, um, for me, it, it stems from, I mean, it's, it's a little bit cliche, but, you know, one person can really change the world because you have to redefine what the world looks like for you. And if you're really thinking about the world in terms of the number of billions of people we have, then yes, it might seem like a daunting task. But if you think about the world in terms of the world of one other person, then you've changed the world because you've impacted the world of that one person. So really redefining um, what your definition of the world looks like and then taking that into your own hands and saying, I can make a positive difference myself right now. Um, and whether you do that by you know, something as simple as donating and that could be donating financially or donating your time or creating a solution. There are a number of solutions that they're waiting to be created. And if you, have identified a problem, whether uh, you know through someone else or even in your own life, then just understanding whether that problem exists for more people. And if you can help uh, whoever by addressing that problem, it's possible. That was all I set out to do was um, understand how I can help this young woman who had so much talent, uh, where she, you know, under- understandably, the marriage market for young women is, is an option uh, because of how cultures have defined um, the marriage market, but if she can find a way to pursue a career where she can not only provide for herself, 
but she can then provide for her right now family, her current family. And then if she chooses to get married herself, provide for the family that she chooses to have for herself. If she can do that, we can give her that ability to do that for herself, then we've created so much wealth already. So just changing that mindset was important for me. I want to address that problem. Um, and so I created uh, what I believe is one possible solution, but there's definitely multiple solutions that you can create. So change your definition of the world, because if you can change the world of one person, then you've already made a difference. Right. In the movie Schindler's List, it, it said that if you could save one person, I'm almost about to cry, but uh, you could save an entire world, right? You, you save basically the entire world, right? And, um, you know, I think what you said is, 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 is so important, like to the people listening, if you can see yourself in that other person that you're trying to help, right? And you want them to have a better experience and maybe you're better off and you want them to have that, that could be a pathway for you to, you know, make a difference, right? And I think, I think that this is certainly, you're able to see, uh, you're able to step in the shoes of those people, that, those uh, young people that you wanted to help. And as a result of that, you know, this is why, you know, you have this organization now that's at, that's making a major difference in the lives of uh, many of our uh, young young um, students. So thank you so much for your love and your dedication, your empathy, um, and your and the light that you've spread to the world. Um, I'm really grateful to know you and work with you and support your cause. And uh, thank you so much. I think uh, I learned so much, and I hope our listeners also got significant value from this conversation. Thank you, Ed. Um, I appreciate it. And for those who haven't read it yet, the more you become, definitely read it. Thank you for that plug. Wow, what a powerful interview we just had with Hedla Jani. Hedla was able to see herself in others, and as a result of her empathy, was able to create Speak Hire, which has now impacted and will impact countless newly arrived immigrants into America. Here are this episode's action items. Action item number one, what change would you like to see happen in this world? What can you do to bring about this change? What would it mean to you personally if you can contribute to this positive change and make our world a better place? Action item number two, what are one to three actions you can take now to better the lives of others? Until next time, uplift yourself and share your life. Do you want to promote growth in different areas of your life, such as in your relationships, in your personal health, in your career, and spiritually? Would you like to create greater balance in your life? Originally, the sixth chapter of The More We Become, you can now get it free as a bonus chapter by visiting www.themorewebecome.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. This podcast is now over. For more information on Ed, head on over to his website at themorewebecome.com. There you can buy your own personal copy of his book. Books are also sold at Amazon and Barnes & Noble.